If you would open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. As you're turning there, listen to this quote by Dane Ortland, who wrote a commentary on 2 Corinthians. He says of, of this one verse, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, he says this is one of the most important texts in the Old Testament for understanding, or she's one of the most important texts in the New Testament for understanding what it means to be a Christian. All of God's word is inspired. There are some, though, that seem to be so packed with truth that you must linger or simmer over it. And because there is so much here, I felt like I'd be kicking myself if I didn't let us simmer over this text at least for a couple of weeks and then we'll speed up through the rest of the book. Because I feel like that if we get this text, or if really we let this text get us, this will change our entire Christian lives. It will change our church. And it's one of those that you don't want to speed over. You want, you, want to, you want to let it soak in. It's just one verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we ask that you reveal your infinite and eternal glory through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do so by the power of the Holy Spirit, even through this ordinary means of grace. We ask a mighty but short prayer in Christ's name. Amen. One person has said, have you ever wondered about the power of the things you behold? Have you ever wondered about the power of the things you behold? What you behold shapes you into what you will become. Augustine tells this story about a friend named Alepius. Alepius was a zealous young Christian who... He wanted to be holy and not worldly. He hated the ancient gladiator games, but some of his friends had peer pressured him to take him to the arena where he would see the games. When they arrived, the entire place, as Augustine says, seethed with the monst most monstrous delight in the cruelty. Alepius kept his eyes shut and he forbid himself to think about such fearful evils. Would that he had blocked his ears as well. A man fell in combat and a great roar went up from the crowd and it struck Alepius with such vehemence that he was overcome in curiosity at what had happened. He opened his eyes. The shouting entered by his ears, forced open his eyes, and as soon as he saw the blood, he at once drank in the savagery. His eyes were riveted. 
He did not turn away, but he imbibed the madness. And without any awareness of what was happening to him, he found delight in the bloodthirsty contest. And here's what Augustine says. He was now not the same person who had come into the arena. He took the madness home with him so that it urged him to return. You become what you behold. You become what you behold. Michael Reeves, theologian today, has said this, whatever it is that we behold, whatever it is, the thing you spend time fixating on, holding in your gaze, will mold you into its image. What you behold is what you will become. That's what Paul is telling us. Paul is saying that in the gospel of grace, as we have that ministry, as we behold Christ, we are being transformed into the image of Christ. That's why we don't have a Jesus plus something else ministry, because whatever the plus is, is what we will behold most. But it's because of the gospel of grace, because of Christ, we behold Him. And as we behold Him, we're transformed into His image. This is the big point of this single phrase that I want to get at this morning. When it says, and we all with unveiled face, and here's the phrase, beholding the glory of the Lord. If you come away with one thing, know this, you become what you behold. What does it mean to behold? To behold, this Greek word means to look at something as in a mirror. And particularly the way this word is used, it means to gaze upon something, to have a prolonged beholding of something. Matter of fact, that's the reason why I named the church podcast Gospel Gazing is for the sense of saying we look longer at the gospel. We want to we prolong our gaze there. Behold means it's the idea of taking time for contemplation and meditation. Not like Zen meditation, but rather meditating upon something in biblical terms means to think deeply about something. To be affectionate about something or someone. We're reminded when Paul says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we're reminded of what Moses did on Mount Sinai and what he would do in the tent of meeting. He would lift up the veil from his face and he would behold the glory of the Lord. And he would take time to do so. But notice the way, notice the grammar of this word. Notice that it does not say behold or beheld. It says beholding. It's talking about the ongoing sense of the verb. And that means that it is a life of continually beholding and gazing upon the glory of Christ. That is what the Christian life is. is the continual beholding of Christ as He is revealed in the Scriptures. As Paul says, the veil has been removed from our face, and that's what happens to our hearts in conversion. 
Notice what Paul is saying is that the gospel of grace that converts us is also the gospel of grace that changes us. In other words, you're not converted by hearing the gospel and then you move on to quote-unquote more mature topics. Rather, all the mature topics are rooted in, built in, and are plunged in the gospel of grace. You keep diving deeper into it. You keep beholding Christ. And that is how you grow into maturity is what Paul is saying. Is that to be transformed, as he says next, it's because of beholding the glory of the Lord. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. What are we beholding? It's not a, it's not a general beholding. It's not a general faith. Rather, it is a specific beholding. A specific faith. Because when Paul mentions beholding the glory of the Lord, he's not talking about a general God. He's talking about Christ. We know from James that even the devils believe that there is a God and they shudder. Even the demons knew who Jesus was. But that did not mean they had real faith. But beholding Him as He is in the gospel, that's what we're beholding. That's what we're looking at. But notice that when he uses, very intentionally, when he uses the word Lord, we're reminded that as Moses in the Old Testament, as he looked upon the glory of Yahweh, Paul is saying that when you look upon Jesus Christ, this is Yahweh in our flesh. Amen? That when you look upon Christ, you see the sovereign, you see the God. You see the God of the Old Testament who took on our flesh. And when you behold Him, you are not beholding something or someone lesser than. You are looking at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So it makes it amazing by saying that He is Lord. I want you to think about that. What Paul is telling you and me is that when we behold Jesus Christ, we are seeing something greater than what Moses saw on Mount Sinai. How often have we said, if God only shows me a sign, if God only spoke audibly to me from heaven. I love what one cartoon or cartoonist did. He's drew a picture of two people and one of the characters said, I wish God would speak to me audibly. And the per other person opened up their Bible and said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Paul is saying that to behold Christ is the ultimate privilege in all of life. It is such an ultimate privilege that the angels look into what we do with fascination. But how can we, especially we, how can we see the face of Jesus? We do believe in the second commandment that we shall have no images. We don't have images up in our church and bowing down to those. Nevertheless, we believe that God took on real, tangible flesh. People could physically look at Jesus back in Jesus' day, but how do we see Jesus when he's not here anymore, he's in heaven? 
Paul actually addresses that because remember, these, most of these Corinthians, if not all of them, would not have physically seen Jesus, but yet Paul is saying, you see him. So how does that happen? Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. In that context, Paul is saying, how do you see the face of Jesus? It's through the proclamation of the word. Remember our story about Alepius, that things that went through the years opened up his eyes, and that happens to us spiritually. There's a reason, very tangible reason, why God in this life before heaven has given us preaching as the central means of converting and changing people, that we would see him audibly. There's a great connection there between why do we call it the word of God, but yet also Christ is the word of God. Because as we hear the word of God proclaimed and we hear of the word, we're also hearing him. And as we hear him, we see him. And we behold his glory even through something as ordinary and everyday as speaking. Paul says, actually, we can see Jesus through hearing in an even more glorious way than Paul saw the glory of God on Mount Sinai. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? It's one of the reasons why not only preaching, but the teaching ministry and even our private one-anothering over Scripture is vital for our faith. That's actually uh, one of the big reasons why, as we've structured the ministries of the church, we want to have not only larger group settings, but also smaller group settings and then even one-on-one settings. Though everything flows from the preaching, the preaching is certainly not the only thing. We, we need to hear the word from each other personally. There are times where I might be having my own private devotions, but then I need to hear something more personal from Austin because sometimes my own heart can be stubborn to believe what's true, but when I hear it from another brother in Christ, it can resonate more. So in, or, in order for us to grow into Christian maturity, we need all these different forms and avenues. We can't just merely show up in the service and then slip out and say, I don't want anyone else to come into my life. But also at the same time, we can't say, well, I'm never going to go to church. This is just going to be a me and Jesus thing because preaching is central to how God converts and changes us. Because it's through hearing that we see. But we have a great aversion or a disdain to a life of beholding, don't we? In our modern age, we don't have time. <laughs> now, what I, as I go on to say this, here's what I don't mean. I'm not saying that working hard in our jobs or in our families or whatever else is bad. That is glorifying to the Lord, and we should work hard. We must work hard. But at the same time, we must remember to put first things first and work hardest at what needs to be worked hardest at. In our day and age, we have an aversion to a life of beholding because we're simply, or at least we say, 
we're too busy or we're too important or other things are too exciting or we're too needed. Really, behind all that, what we're saying is that beholding the glory of Christ and taking time to do so is too hard or too boring or not practical enough. A story about Henry Ford, he once hired an an efficiency expert to evaluate his company. After a few weeks, the expert had made his report, and it was a highly favorable report except for one thing, and the expert said, it's that man down the hall, every time I go by his office, he's just sitting there with his feet up on on the desk. He's wasting your money. Henry Ford said this, that man once had an idea that saved us millions of dollars. And at the time that he discovered that idea, I believe his feet were planted right there where they are now. We're seeing this just in general work. Actually, the value of taking time on things rather than being such in a hurry that we just go from thing to thing to thing where we lack the quality. And certainly that mirrors the more importance of it in the Christian life. We have a disdain for taking time to behold the glory of Christ, not only because we're too busy, but really because we're too busy because we've said yes to too many things. By saying yes to so many things, we have by default said no to the most important things. We also don't like to take time to behold because it's not what everyone else seems to be doing, even other Christians. But really, as John Owen gets at, maybe our aversion and our dislike for a life of beholding has less to do with preference and more related to our sanctification. And this is where it gets convicting. John Owen said, to allow our love for Christ and spiritual things, to allow it to grow lukewarm, is of all things that which the Lord Christ is most displeased with, both in churches and in professing Christians. How do we see this dislike, this disdain for beholding the glory of Christ or beholding, taking our time to just dwell in his presence? Well, I remember when I was preaching from Isaiah 6 to some college students and for whatever reason I had just left out a lot of the more tangible practical reflections on it and I just really wanted to placard the glory of God in Christ, who is the holy, holy, holy one. This is a great moment in ministry for me. It wasn't the sermon, it was this. When I walk down, and I'm walking down the aisle, there's one student who, like, right next to me goes, Oh, that was so boring. I, I just, there's so many thoughts I had at that moment. I just... Tucked my tail and sat back down. Now, let's be honest. Can preachers be boring? Yes. Uh, We know how to preach a dud or two. That's for sure. But let's not mistake beholding the glory of Christ for boredom. Let's not say that at times when we leave out maybe some good, practical, some necessary things that we should get out eventually, but maybe we don't have all the time to. I'll try to remember that. But let's not mistake beholding the glory of Christ for boredom. 
I'm afraid that we might not enjoy heaven very much if we don't like beholding him now. Remember a young preacher, I say I remember, that's great, because I wasn't alive this time. This is an illustration for Charles Spurgeon, who died in the 1800s. I don't remember this, I read this. <laughs> young preacher approached Spurgeon, my good friend Spurgeon, and he said, he said, when I preach, no one will come to hear me. Spurgeon responded to the man, Douse yourself with gasoline, strike a match, set yourself on fire, and people will come to watch you burn. Obviously, he's not speaking literally. He is speaking like Jesus would by saying in the hyperbole, Brother, if you don't have fire in the pulpit, then how can you expect your people to listen? How can you expect people to be passionate about your Christ if you are not passionate about that Christ? I remember a seminary professor of mine said, Brothers, the problem is not that the Bible is boring. The problem is that the preacher is boring. So whenever your preacher is boring, don't leave. Pray for him. But if we're honest, maybe in churches in America, maybe our people are bored with the glory of God because our pastors are bored with the glory of God. Shouldn't it be strange for a man who's supposed to spend most of his efforts during the week on his most important agenda, which is the sermon, shouldn't it be strange for him to get up into the pulpit to appear less passionate than he was just the day before when he was watching college football? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I can forgive a man a bad sermon... I can forgive the preacher almost anything if, if he gives me a sense of God, if he gives me something for my soul, if he gives me the sense that though he is inadequate in himself, he is handling something which is very great and glorious. If he does that, I am his debtor and I am profoundly grateful to him. It's interesting also at the same time that times of worship have been canceled more and more and been replaced with quote-unquote more practical things. And we often forget what John Piper said in his book on missions. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions in itself isn't the goal. Worship is. Often what can be promoted today is that some people will say we're too heavenly minded that we're no earthly good while C.S. Lewis, who was no slouch, he said that we're not earthly good because we're not heavenly minded. Matter of fact, we could also say that we're no heavenly good if we're not heavenly minded. And we could even say that we're no earthly good because precisely we're too earthly minded. As J. Gresham Machen said, our material betterment has gone hand in hand with spiritual decline, talking about the history of our country. What hinders this, tran this transformation? What hinders this beholding the glory of the Lord? It's interesting that actually the way in which this is written in the Greek is that this particular tense of beholding the glory of the Lord it means that transformation, it won't happen and can't happen 
if we aren't beholding the glory of Christ. It means that transformation doesn't just happen automatically. Now, this does not mean that your sanctification, your transforming into Christ's image, it doesn't mean that it's 100% left up to you. That's not the case at all. All of our sanctification is all by the grace of God, but the grace of God is through means that we partake in. Transformation also means this. Transformation doesn't happen because, as I heard one older man say, well, I've read all those books when I was younger. I'm fine now. Transformation certainly doesn't happen as our culture promotes. It certainly does not happen by our own self-obsession. Dane Ortland again says, to behold the glory of Christ is actually to be given back our true selves. But when we just behold self, we miss out on Christ and then also self. C.S. Lewis says this, until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have your real self. Your real, your new self will not come as long as you're looking for it in and of itself. It comes to you when you're looking for him. That's the tragedy of today. It's not that we're trying to learn who we are. That's a good desire. The problem is we're going about it with very wrong means. Because whenever you forget your creator, when you forget your savior, you inevitably will never know yourself, no matter how many things we read, tests we take, or podcasts we listen to. What happens when we behold other things more? In Psalm 115, it's actually a phenomenal psalm talking about this, that it says that whenever we create idols of our own making, whenever we behold other things other than Christ, we transform into that image of the idol. So it's not merely that we become what we behold if it's Christ. It also works inversely. The more we gaze upon sin, the more we gaze upon an obsession of the worldly things. And we forsake Christ, we become more like our idols. Often, these are some of the things we can behold most. Our money, professional reputation, our health status, our social status, our Amazon shopping cart, the current gossip, the beauty or lack of beauty we think of our bodies, others' bodies, our problems, our stories, our earthly burdens, our entertainment, social media, politics and news, alcohol, Grades, athletic accomplishments, celebrities, cars, homes, retirement savings, resumes, job fulfillment, career advancement, tomorrow's bills, our children's success in life, our, our parents' failures and ours, society's problems, or even OSU sports. As one writer, Neil Postman, said in the title of his book, We Are Amusing Ourselves to Death. 
Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. There's an order there. We give to the Lord first and then we go out and live in the world. We are to live in the world. We don't draw away from it, but we're not to be of the world. But rather, instead of honoring the Lord with our first fruits, we tend to honor our phones with our first fruits by giving it most attention and most follow-up, finding most comfort in what we can get on our phones, letting our phones determine our beliefs or where we can find adoring. Oftentimes with our phones, we are like the man or the woman who throughout the day is having an emotional affair with someone else when they finally return back to their covenant spouse at home and they just give them the leftovers. That's why sin is called spiritual adultery. Now, here's the thing. For us to think too harsh on this, and I wrote this because it's what I felt, we can often think that that's too harsh to think about, but ever, whenever we think that that is too harsh, it really just shows how little we value the glory of Christ. It is interesting, you never see angels or hear about angels who are bored in heaven, do you? You never hear about angels being bored in heaven or who have to distract themselves constantly with hours and hours and hours upon their phones or their shows or whatever it might be. Interesting, we tend to give more respect to our phones and to our entertainment and to our technologies than we give to Christ. We tend to even do it less than what the demons did to Jesus. Whenever Jesus would show up, they would immediately run to him and say, what would you have us do? And they didn't have faith. It is probably no coincidence that as the American church and even sometimes the Reformed churches that as we have become more obsessed with the world and winning the world, that we have simultaneously downplayed the glory of Christ. And no wonder we have seen so many pastors and churches fail morally, ethically, and theologically. As some of my mentors taught me, don't miss the context. I say this with conviction of myself. But it should be a shame upon us whenever we feel like we can only give an hour and a half of our week to worship while at the same time we can give 10 hours of our Saturdays to football. Here's what a church father named Chrysostom said. For this glory, talking about the unspeakable glory of Christ, when we do behold it, it remains with us for a day or two and then we quench it bringing over it the winter of worldly concerns and with thickness of those clouds repelling the heavenly rays. This is very interesting. He says this. Chrysostom says, Nothing is more cowardly than the man who is riveted with worldly things. Now to be sure, he's not saying that we're anti-creation and world. That's not. That, that would be, if we're anti-creation, that would be what we call heresy. Don't do that. But there's a grand difference between what you love most 
Chrysostom says that we are most cowardly whenever we are worldly. He even goes on to say that actually shows that lots of men are losing their manhood whenever they're worldly and they don't take time to behold the glory of Christ. How about that for a conviction in the sermon? Thomas Brooks, the Puritan author, said one of Satan's chief tactics is to present the world to our senses in such glory that we think it has more to offer us than God does. As C.S. Lewis so famously said, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, talking about in heaven, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. But we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. And he says this, we are far too easily pleased. Isn't it a tragedy that sin has warped the way we were meant to be? Isn't it horrific to see how wicked our hearts are that we desire Christ so little? That's the reason why Christ had to go to the cross. That's the reason. Christ had to go to the cross because we did not like beholding the glory of the Lord. And when he was on the cross, we actually see God's curse coming down upon him so that we could receive his blessing. One of the benedictions that we often give in this church is from Numbers chapter 6. And we have to remember, whenever we receive a blessing, it's because Christ received the curse. So if we reverse Numbers 6, we could understand a little bit more about what happened on the cross. Let, let me let you hear this reversal. That on the cross, as the Lord died for our sin, it was as if he heard this. The Lord curse you and forsake you. The Lord turn his face away from you and cast you into utter darkness and be wrathful towards you. The Lord take away all sense of his goodness towards you. May he remove his merciful presence and may he give you utter spiritual anxiety. There's no reason... Or no wonder why Jesus quoted Psalm 22 on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because if we who are God forsakers were going to be saved, then he must take the penalty of our sin. And thank goodness he did. Amen? And he took all of it. And when he took all of it, he was able to give such extreme mercy to us and forgive us for forsaking him, for not wanting to behold his glory. He has forgiven all of our sins. And not only has he forgiven us, but he's had the audacity to clothe us with his righteousness. 
That now, because of Jesus Christ, even though we never had a life of beholding the glory of the Lord, but because Jesus did, we receive that identity, that record, that righteousness. So now, God always looks at you as if you have had the utmost desire for His glory. And He treats you that way. Amen? So that even in our worst God-forsaking moments, the Father still abundantly delights in us because we belong to Christ. And you know what happens when He does that? By the Holy Spirit, He gives us a desire to behold His glory. Amen? One of the ways you can very much thwart Satan's temptations for you to think that God's grace is not enough he might tempt you, often does, to say, you don't want Christ enough, so therefore you must not be a believer. But even if you have the smallest want or desire for Christ, you have to ask the question, how did that desire get there? The Holy Spirit. Therefore, dear believer, rest assured that in Christ you have his righteousness. Amen? He... he he pumps in us, as it were, that spiritual desire to behold His glory. And as we behold His glory, it says we are transformed. I'll get into that word more next week. But what it means here is this, is that you see that it, they're both in the present tense, meaning that as you behold the glory of Christ, you are always being transformed. That means whenever you behold the glory of Christ, even when you don't always feel it, God is at work. Amen? You become what you behold. You become who you behold. Brothers and sisters, I want us to believe this. Because so often we can be so discouraged thinking, is anything happening in my life? Is there any change to my heart and to my soul as I fight against sin? As I try to persevere day after day in this suffering? Is anything happening? Yes, it is. It is a definitive fact that is governing your life if you're a believer. That as you behold the glory of Christ, you are being transformed into his image. Amen? You are. You see, Satan loves to cast doubt upon us in that area because if he can make us have doubts about if we're growing, then we'll try something else rather than Christ. And whenever we don't look at Christ, we're not becoming more and more in his image. Satan only has two different types of temptation. It's either to tempt you to think Christ isn't good enough for me, so I will indulge in sin. His other temptation is to say that with your sin, Christ isn't enough for you, so you need to find atonement elsewhere. Both of those are all about taking your eyes off Christ. So if your greatest enemy does not want you to look at Christ, what do you think your greatest need is? Ah, look at Christ. That's exactly what God has given us so that we might be transformed and sanctified. That means that no matter what season of life it is, no matter what trouble it is, 
No matter how heinous the sin or the strength of addiction, no matter what practical responses are needed, no matter what mental state someone is in, no matter what need of counseling, no matter what person or what their background is, what everyone needs all the time is to behold the glory of Christ in the gospel. Amen? Always. But doesn't this show how amazing God is? Doesn't this show how amazingly beautiful and gracious and loving he is that he would dare say to sinners, do you want to change? Do you want to love me more? Notice that he doesn't say, go and do these 12, 15, or however many strategies. Go climb up the steps of Rome or whatever it might be. Go do these grueling, self-centered things. No, he says, stop what you're doing. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Behold my glory. And that is the greatest privilege in a human's life. And he says, I'll give you that. And that's how you change. Amen? There is no greater privilege. It's as if he's saying, like what often can happen with chefs wanting to be better how do you have a better taste of food how do you know what foods are good you don't do that by eating bad foods you do it by eating good food positively delight in the glory of the lord positively believe his grace and his mercy for you and you will be changed what grace, what, what, what privilege, what glory that he has given us that we might be transformed into Christ's image by beholding him in his beauty. That's exactly what happens as Brent prayed. What happens in revival, genuine revival, is that you see groups of people longing to behold the glory of Christ. How do you know you're growing, even if it's in the smallest sense that you think? It's always bigger than you think. You're growing in a longing for Christ, a longing to know his, his forgiveness, His cleansing, His mercy, His teaching, His person, who He is in heaven. See, that's why we must live a life of beholding. Because as we behold him, we are being transformed. We are coming to know him, and that never leaves us the same. So while we behold him through the means of grace, through the word, through prayer, through baptism, and the Lord's Supper, all happening within the context of the church. Here's what happens when we behold him. There's actually a, a really interesting twofold meaning to this word, behold. It can also mean to reflect. You see what's happening here, right? As you behold his glory, you will reflect it more. You realize what is the greatest good for society? What is the greatest need for the church to make the most impact? To behold the glory of Christ. Your greatest need as a parent, your greatest need as a spouse, your greatest need as a worker, your greatest need as a neighbor, whatever it might be, the first and foremost thing, behold the glory of Christ. 
Because as we do, we reflect that glory. So what happened with Moses when he came down from the Mount, Mount Sinai. He reflected the glory of God because he saw the glory of God. That's why we have to remember that we must be like the moon. The moon shines brightest when it is out of the way of the world and it takes in the glory of the sun. And that's when it shines most light onto the world. Notice its worldly relevance, as it were, is when it steps from out from behind the world to face the sun. So the Christian makes most impact in this world whenever they are not indulging all the time in worldly things. They're enjoying the glory of God and therefore they are most relevant in the world. But whenever you make the world in itself your goal, whenever we're focusing first and foremost about what can we do, who can we be, how can we win over the world, how can we respect it, we actually will lose the world. This is huge for churches today. This is huge for Christians today. We love the world because God so loved the world that he sent his son, but we cannot love the world unless we show them the son. And we can't show him unless we see him. Notice how complex yet simple the Christian life is. You behold the glory of Christ. Notice the hope for anyone who needs hope. To behold Christ. C.S. Lewis said when he's thinking about of heaven, he said, can anything be added to this idea of finally being with Christ? For it must be true, as an old writer says, it must be true that he who has God and everything else in the world they have no more than he who has God only. We do not want to merely see beauty, though God knows even that is good enough. We want something else which is, can hardly be put into words to be united to the beauty that we see. To bathe in it. To become part of it. And my friends, that's what you have in heaven when you have Christ. You have him and therefore you have everything. If you believe in Christ, you have everything that is sufficient for all of life and godliness. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask that you would continue to billboard and placard the glory of Christ before us. That we would see that beholding him is our life's chief end. It is the business of heaven. It is the way of sanctification. It is the way of conversion. And would you reshape us, Lord Jesus, in light of your grace, reshape us to delight in beholding you. We ask all this in your name. Amen.